This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Season 2 of The Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett. In this episode, I will explain why and how the NFL must fix its terrible track record in black executive leadership representation, and how Super Bowl 56 highlighted the change that is needed. And I will also welcome in ARC member Colin McGilligott to share his story and perspective on why it's critical for young white men to stand up for anti-racism. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzel Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Our vision at Arc is to build a racism-free world. And our mission is to provide the inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism. Now, this begins with our process to personally transform to anti-racism. There are three steps. The first is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is about educating yourself about anti-racism. And the third is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and make positive change happen. Now, in this episode, I want to talk about sports. The NFL, the National Football League specifically, and why and how the NFL must fix its terrible track record in black executive leadership representation. That means head coach and above. So head coach, general manager, vice president of operations, and all the way up even ownership. And how Super Bowl 56 highlighted the change that is needed. Now, the National Football League is the king of sports in the United States. There's no question about that. It's the most valuable league. It has several of the most valuable franchises in all of sports. It's the most watched, not just sport, but entertainment medium in the United States. It has such a following that it actually shapes society in many, many ways. The ratings, however, have been down. Television ratings have been down over the last several years. And this concerned uh, many of the National Football League administrators and owners. But in 2021 and 2022, in that season, the NFL saw a turnaround in this trend. Super Bowl 56, which was just last weekend, culminated one of the best postseasons the NFL has had in its history. The season was the first to expand to 17 games, the regular season, and it was the first in terms of where the playoffs were expanded to include 14 teams, seven in each conference. The playoffs this year were loaded with high-quality, very dramatic games with tremendous drama, anticipation, 
that went all the way down to the wire. The divisional round or the quarterfinals and the conference championship round, the semifinals, were arguably some of the greatest playoff games in terms of high drama that we have ever seen. Every game was decided by even either a single point or came down to the last possible drive or many a field goal as time was expiring or went into overtime and carried the drama into extra minutes of TV watching for football fans. There were so many great games and storylines in the course of these playoffs. Many of the league's newest young star quarterbacks were matched against several of the long-standing legends of the NFL, marking a possible changing of the guard. The San Francisco 49ers went into Green Bay and beat four-time NFL MVP Aaron Rodgers on a last-second field goal. The Kansas City Chiefs beat the Buffalo Bills in overtime in one of the most talked-about playoff games in recent memory, where many were calling it the greatest game ever played. And of course, the Cincinnati Bengals reached the Super Bowl with a last-second field goal with wins over two of the best teams in the AFC. They beat the number one seed Tennessee Titans in Tennessee on a last-second field goal. Then they beat the Kansas City Chiefs. The team would been to the AFC Championship game a record four times. They beat them in Kansas City in overtime, also with a field goal. And finally, the Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams beat the defending champs, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, on again a last-second field goal, but that was after they gave up a 24- or 25-point lead in the fourth quarter. But ultimately, they were able to win the game and effectively end the career, as we know it right now, of the greatest player of all time, Tom Brady, and then went on to beat the San Francisco 49ers in a close defensive struggle in the NFC Championship game. And then there was the Super Bowl itself, which had the first all-hip-hop halftime show, gangster rap, by the way, and which came down to also the last seconds with a defensive stop by Aaron Donald and Von Miller and the Rams' defense to seal the win. It was one of the most heavily watched postseasons in NFL history and closed with a return of over 100 million in total viewership for Super Bowl 56. Can't argue. 2021-22, that season for the NFL was a great success. The drama of whether Aaron Rodgers would repeat his MVP whether Patrick Mahomes would come back from last year's Super Bowl loss and win, and whether Tom Brady would win back-to-back Super Bowls for two different teams and then ride off in the sunset and retire. The playoffs were great this year, as I talked about, for the NFL, and the Super Bowl and the halftime show was a great success as well. All of this, all the great storylines, all the great games, the great Super Bowl, the historic halftime show has been overshadowed by the continued lack of diverse representation and specifically black representation in the highest levels of leadership for the league 
and the very sharp accusations of bias, impropriety, and racism against the NFL by many, and a lawsuit by one of the best young coaches in the game. Former Miami Dolphins head coach Brian Flores is suing the National Football League and three of its teams, the Miami Dolphins, the Denver Broncos, and the New York Giants, alleging racism and hiring practices, among other improprieties. Among his allegations are that Dolphins owner Stephen Ross wanted him to tank, which for those that don't know, means to purposely lose games. In fact, according to uh, to Flores, uh, Ross offered him $100,000 for every loss in 2019. Flores also alleges that the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos conducted sham in-person interviews with him to comply with the Rooney Rule, which I'll talk about and explain later. Again, Flores is one of the very best young coaches in the league, bar none. He took a moribund Dolphins team that was expected to be one of the worst in the league and made them competitive in his first year and winners of 10 games in his second year making the playoffs and in his third year took them from a 2-7 and seven start to finish with a winning record, one of the few coaches to ever do that and barely missed the playoffs. Flores also has a 4-2 and two record with the Dolphins against Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick is regarded as one of the greatest coaches of all time in NFL history. And no one owns a better record against Belichick and the Patriots than Brian Flores. Flores' suit is not isolated or out of the blue or a case of some disgruntled employee. Again, this guy was tremendously successful with just really not a great team, but he turned them into winners. It is the inevitable outcome this suit is from 100 years of egregious exclusion of African-Americans from leadership in the NFL. The National Football League has a long and troubled history when it comes to race and team leadership representation, especially head coaches. You know, now that it is Black History Month, it's really good to kind of help share this unknown fact. How many of you know that the first black coach in the NFL actually was hired 101 years ago? In 1921, Fritz Pollard broke the NFL coaching color barrier. However, sadly, it took 68 years before Art Shell became the second black man to lead an NFL team. At the turn of the second millennium, the year 2000, in the modern era of the NFL, there had only been four black coaches. Fritz Pollard, Art Shell, Dennis Green, and Tony Dungy. 22 years later, in the league's 102nd season, 13 franchises had never even hired a black non-interim head coach, and 11 others had only installed one. Said another way, entering the 2022 hiring cycle, three quarters of the league's 32 franchises had employed either one or zero black head coaches in 102 years. It is against this backdrop that former Dolphins coach 
Brian Flores, kicked off Black History Month by filing this lawsuit. For again, very clear patterns that in his lawsuit are alleged of racist hiring practices by the league and racial discrimination by the Dolphins, the Broncos, and the Giants. The NFL had only one black head coach entering this hiring cycle. The longest tenured black head coach ever with one team, Mike Tomlin, who has 15 years in Pittsburgh. And six of the first nine vacancies this year went to white men. Two of the final three, however, went to diverse candidates. The Texans hired Lovey Smith, who is black, and the Dolphins hired Mike McDaniel, who's multiracial. His mother's Jamaican, she's black, his father is of Italian descent. But those hirings came one week after Brian Flores filed his lawsuit. The details of Flores' lawsuit allege this. The Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, attempted to incentivize him to tank, to lose, on purpose, shortly after he was hired in 2019. Again, I talked about Ross, according to Flores, uh, offered Flores $1,000 for every loss that season. Flores says that, you know, as the team won games late in the year, which you would think the owner would be like, wow, this is great. The Dolphins general manager, Chris Gear, Greer, told him, told Flores that Ross was mad. And he was getting madder that the Dolphins on-field success, they're winning too many games, was compromising the team's draft position. Now, this may seem crazy that an owner, again, wanted his team to lose in a league where anything could happen if the team plays to win their games. No one expected the Cincinnati Bengals, by the way, to be in the Super Bowl this year. They're a team that was basically just coming off of two or three straight losing seasons. Yes, they drafted Joe Burrow as the top pick, but he just had a, 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 a terrible knee injury in the season before. It wasn't even expected that he would come back, much less come back in an effective way, yet they still went out and tried to win games. Everyone who watches football knew that that's not what Stephen Ross's mentality was, though, before the 2019 season. It was clear that he wanted his team to tank. Everybody knew that. He wanted this team to lose. He traded one of the best young safeties in the league after just one season in Miami. Minka Fitzpatrick traded him to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Minka Fitzpatrick is an all-pro, and he's helped the Steelers return to defensive greatness. Ross traded his top two receivers, including Jarvis Landry, who's been one of the most productive players in the Cleveland Browns and one of their team leaders. He got rid of two of the most important position players in the game. The left tackle. Anytime you can have a really good left tackle, you got a chance to win. They had one in Laramie Tunzel, who is an all-pro. And your starting quarterback. If you have a starting quarterback with experience, it was pretty good. You have a good chance. Ryan Tannehill was their starting quarterback. They released Tannehill. Tunzel is now the anchor of the Texans O-line. And Tannehill has led the Tennessee Titans to the AFC Championship game in 2021 and to the best record in the AFC in 2022. Clearly, the owner, Ross, was stripping his team of talent and was expecting them and wanting them to lose. He then hired Brian Flores thinking, this guy's a young coach. He's not going to be able to turn them around. But he made a mistake. This guy's a great coach. And he coached them up 
to overachieve, the hallmark of what great coaching is all about. And not only that, he beat his mentor, the guy who had coached under for three or four years in New England. Again, the greatest coach of all time, Bill Belichick, four times. This is the team that the Dolphins had always struggled against. He even beat him when Tom Brady was still there in 2019. Again, he took this team that has been stripped of its talent and in his second year won 10 games and reached the playoffs. In his third year, again, they started 2-7. and seven. They had injuries, but they came back to finish 9-7 and seven and were only one game out of the playoffs. If there was ever a clear-cut case of outperforming all expectations and winning, even though your owner wanted you to lose, this is it. Additionally, Flores alleges that Ross pressured him into recruiting a prominent quarterback at the end of 2019. Of course, Brian Flores was smart. He understood that this is tampering because the other quarterback was under contract. When Ross allegedly invited him to on his yacht and told him, uh, hey, coach, this, this prominent quarterback might be there uh, right away. Flores said, I can't come to that meeting. That's tampering. After that, Flores said when he refused to come to the yacht and be involved in breaking the league rules. He says after that, he was treated with disdain and held out as someone who was non-compliant and difficult to work with. Again, just to put the, the pieces in place for you. It's important to note that Flores was fired on January 10th, despite recording the Dolphins' first back-to-back -back winning seasons since 2003. Again, also being the first coach, in, in one of the very few coaches in the history of the league, to take a team that started 2-7 and seven and get back to a winning record of 9-7. and seven. And the only coach with a winning record of four and two against Bill Belichick's New England Patriots. But by winning, by winning, the owner created a toxic work culture that Flores had to work in. He still succeeded. The owner jettisoned the team's top talent. Flores still succeeded. His owner even offered him a bribe to tank and lose. And against all of that, Brian Flores still succeeded, clearly in an environment that was set up for him to fail and in which was racially tinged. Regarding the New York Giants, Flores alleges that his January 27th interview with the Giants, which again satisfied this Rooney rule that I'll talk about later, um, was, was basically a sham. He was simply interviewed to satisfy the Rooney rule. How did Flores know this? Because the very next day after his interview, the Giants hired the former Bills offensive coordinator as their head coach, meaning they had already made up their mind who they were hiring before Flores even interviewed. Regarding the Denver Broncos, Flores alleges that a similar scenario occurred when he interviewed with the Broncos for their head coaching job three years ago in 2019. Flores says that then Denver general manager John Elway, among others, arrived to the interview an hour late and hungover, alleging that they had been drinking heavily the night before. Clearly, they did not take this interview seriously and only were going on with it to satisfy the, the dictates of the Rooney rule.
in the lawsuit filed by Flores. His law firm said the coach hopes to shine a light on the racial injustices that take place inside the NFL. Among the areas Flory said he would like to see addressed is increased influence of black individuals in hiring, increase the objectivity of hiring and terminating of GMs, head coaches, and coordinators, increase the number of black coordinators, incentivize hiring and retaining of black GMs, head coaches, and coordinators, and providing transparency of pay for general managers, head coaches, and coordinators. The lawsuit seeks unspecified damages from the NFL, which of course the NFL has called the claims of the lawsuit without merit. Flores knows that his stance is likely to end his coaching career, which again was one of the brightest of all young coaches. But he felt that he had to stand up, speak out, and take action against the NFL's racist culture and hiring practices. In other words, Stand up, speak out, and take action for anti-racism. Flory said in a statement put out by his lawyer, God has gifted me with a special talent to coach the game of football. But the need for change is bigger than my personal goals. In making the decision to file this class action complaint today, I understand that I may be risking coaching the game that I love and that has done so much for me and my family. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join me to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. It takes courage to stand up like Brian Flores is doing. It's just a shame that he has to when the injustice is so obvious for everyone to see. 70% of the players in the NFL are black. 70%. Yet, just a little more than 6% of the head coaches in the league, or 2 of 32, yes, 2 of 32, the same number that we had in the year 2000, are black. This is one of the most egregious examples of exclusionary underrepresentation in the workplace that I have ever seen. And again, this isn't new. It spans the NFL in terms of its history as being viewed or having its owners view that smarts and strategy, roles that require that, like head coach, quarterback, general manager, vice president, that these are roles that blacks aren't suited for. It's been a pattern in the NFL for its 102-year history. It's very clear that the the mentality of the owners is, hey, black players are great. We need them, man. (laughs) They bring high-quality excitement to our games. Uh, That's true. They are some of the greatest and biggest stars we have in the country. They're legends. But the owners have continued to maintain this very, very thick glass ceiling on leadership roles. Black players can play, they can't lead. The league wants to pretend and have you believe that this glass ceiling doesn't exist. Just like they wanted to pretend that racial injustice and prejudice in our society didn't exist either. 
That was until Colin Kaepernick made them face it. By starting a movement, taking a knee that forced the NFL to at least start to acknowledge that racial injustice, bigotry, and systemic racism, that many of their players and their families and the fans and people across this country face, including their employees every single day. And that there's significant progress that, yes, has been made in terms of black quarterbacks breaking through their glass ceiling. And several of the top stars in the league now are black quarterbacks. But it can no longer be ignored that the progress across other roles in leadership in the NFL is stalled. And that even the person who forced the NFL to face that racial injustice, Colin Kaepernick, was effectively banned from the league for standing up, speaking out, and taking action. And this is the same risk that Brian Flores is taking to drive change. Maybe this is why rapper Eminem, the lone white performer during the Super Bowl halftime show, was also the only one to take a knee during the halftime performance to highlight the reality of white privilege and the injustice against Kaepernick, Flores, and so many others in the NFL and in our society as a whole. Remember, the NFL has never had a black majority owner. Never. The NFL has only two black club presidents, has a total of seven black general managers, five of whom were hired just in just the last 13 months. Among the top 11 executives at the league office, there's only two black people. Within the newsroom at the NFL Media Group, there is not a single black person among the senior managers. These are the people who determine how the league, with a player population that is 70% black, is covered. Just pay attention to the games you watch on Sundays and Mondays. How many of the announcers you see on television are black? Versus the fact that 70% of the players they're covering are black. Let's compare this with the other major team sport in the United States in which the majority players are black. The NBA, the National Basketball Association. Many people probably think the NBA has way more or a higher percentage of black players in the NFL. But that's not true. It's not true at all. In fact, it's extremely close. The NFL, as I said, 70% black. The NBA is 75% black. And the NBA, you know, has its own issues. For many years, it was as bad, if not worse, than the NFL in black leadership representation and head coach, general manager, vice president, and ownership. But to its credit, the NBA has made tremendous strides in recent years. Just this past offseason, the number of black coaches in the NBA almost doubled and increased from 23% to 43%. At the close of 2020, there were only seven black head coaches in the NBA. Be because of the hiring progress, the fantastic hiring progress and commitment made by owners in this past offseason, 13 black coaches started the 2021-22 season which was only one shy of the all-time high at the start of 2012-13 season of 14. And as of the 2022 season starting, there are now 14 black head coaches, which is now 47% of the league's coaches. 
Of course, it doesn't quite yet match the 75% of its players, but it dwarfs the NFL's pitiful 6% in a league where they have 70% of their players also being black. How did the NBA make this progress? Hiring. Commitment by their leadership to hire. You cannot catch up underrepresentation if you underhire. Of the eight coaching vacancies filled last summer in the NBA, seven were by African American candidates. That's seven of eight hirings, 87% of those hires went to black coaches. Now, contrast that to the NFL, where one of eight hires, 12.5% in the NFL. And two of eight, 25%, if you count the multiracial head coach that was hired. It is clear to see that the NBA is serious about changing its leadership demographics. And it's clear that the NFL is not. Further evidence of this difference between the leagues is that while there's just two African-American coaches in the 32-team NFL and one multiracial, and there are five overall minorities, one Latinx, one Middle Eastern. There are 14 African-American coaches and 16 total minorities running NBA teams from the sidelines of their 30 teams in their league. One of the biggest reasons why the NBA has done so well, again, is diversifying their, 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 their coaching ranks, their leadership ranks by differential hiring. And that's because the NBA now has 10 black general managers and nine black assistant GMs. They have eight African-Americans holding positions as lofty as president of basketball operations. In other words, they've got people who look like the players in leadership, making the coaching hiring decisions. African-American coaches and GMs actually represent six NBA teams in both positions. You know, leave it to Sir Charles Barkley, who has a funny way of putting things, to point out the monumental differences in hiring practices for head coaches between what appears to be a lily-white NFL and a more culturally diverse NBA. Barkley said, I never thought I'd say this. We're going to actually have a black woman Supreme Court judge before we have a black NFL coach. Barkley said sarcastically, what a great country we live in. Leave it to me, though, to say the following. I never thought I would see the day when NASCAR, a mostly southern sport, with less than 3% black drivers, has four black owners, including a black woman, all before the NFL, with 70% black players, has even won. The Arc of Change podcast is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about Arc and join our movement. Back in 2002, the NFL recognized that there was little progress being made in minority coaches being hired and introduced what they called the Rooney Rule. 
Now, the Rooney Rule, again, was instituted in 2002 and was named after former Pittsburgh Steelers owner Dan Rooney. And this rule requires teams to interview at least two minority candidates for every open head coaching position and other senior leadership roles. Though initially celebrated, opinions on the policy have soured, especially following Brian Flory's allegations and lawsuit. Since the Rooney Rule was instituted, 27 of 127 head coaching jobs, or about 21%, have gone to minorities. Again, if you have a representation gap in which your players represent 70%, in other words, 70% of your players are black, and yet your coaching representation uh, held by, by blacks are only 6%, You're never going to make up that gap if you're only hiring at 21%. It'll never happen, especially if you're not retaining those diverse hired candidates at a higher rate than you are the majority candidates, which they're not. In fact, I'll talk about how they're being let go much more frequently. See, the things that haven't changed from the Rooney Rule isn't the fact that people are being interviewed. It's the fact that the hiring patterns have not changed. Unlike I talked about with the NBA, it's because those who are making the hiring decisions have also not changed. I talked about how only one black coach was hired in this cycle out of eight, one multiracial. If you go back to last year, there were seven openings for head coach and only one of those openings went to a black candidate. His name's David Culley with the Texans. And in fact, as I mentioned earlier, You can't continue to build if you hire at a low rate and fire at a much faster rate. David Culley was fired after one season with the Texans. Now, certainly they had a losing record, but everybody knew the Texans were going to be one of the worst teams. Most people thought they were going to win zero games. The guy was able to at least get them to compete, and yet he still was not given the benefit of the doubt. Now, if you compare that to the NBA, remember last year there were eight openings, seven went to black coaches. Again, there is no way, no way you will ever change this horrific underrepresentation in the NFL coaching and general manager ranks or overall leadership unless disproportionate hire, hiring of black coaches and general, general managers doesn't start now. In my mind, at least 50% of the coaching and general manager hires need to be black. And before anyone thinks that this is somehow a quota, this isn't. This is simply trying to make up for the difference in representation. And by the way, there are tremendously qualified black coaches and general managers. And those who have been hired on average have proven to be as successful as white coaches and GMs, um, if not more successful. When you consider the lack of access for 70 years of the 102 years of the history of the league, there certainly were just like no clo- no black coaches and GMs that had a chance, and the continued lack of support for ownership to, to hire them and maintain them, to give them an opportunity. Again, the first black coach in the NFL was hired in 2021. That was 101 years ago. Again, when this great player, Fritz Pollard was a great player, was hired to be the player coach of the Akron pros. There wouldn't be another coach that was black until 1988 when Art Shell took over. And since then, there's only been 19. Two of them, just to put in perspective in terms of success that this limited sample size has had, 
Two of these 21 black coaches have won Super Bowls. Now, that's a 10% Super Bowl success winning rate of black coaches, which is very well in line with the winning rate if you take a look at all the white coaches who've been in the NFL during the Super Bowl era, or certainly over the last 33 years when really black coaches have been coaching, again, on a very limited level because of the lack of hiring. Again, very well in line. And I would say, again, more impressive when you consider the fact that very few of the black coaches who have been hired have had the commitment for long-term team building, which is which is really important in the NFL when you're building a team with the exception of, of someone like Mike Tomlin at the Pittsburgh Steelers, who's had 15 years with them, or Tony Dungy, who had a fairly long career with the Buccaneers and a fairly long career with the uh, Indianapolis Colts. Most other black coaches, after they're hired, any small hiccup, and they're fired. In fact, five of the 21 black coaches have been fired after only one season. And since 2018, there have been three coaches fired after one season. Two, or 67%, were black. The only white coach fired after one season was Urban Meyer. And this was after he had a disaster, a disaster of a first year with the Jacksonville Jaguars with significant issues on and off the field, including complaints from his players and assistant coaches, and a social media video of him cavorting with a woman in a bar who was not his wife. All of that is what finally forced his firing. Most of the white coaches get the benefit of the doubt. Not all, but many. In fact, if you look at the coaches who've had the longest tenures in the NFL in coaching, I'm just going to give you a partial list. You have to remember George Hallis coached 40 years in the NFL, the Chicago Bears over three stints. Curly Lambeau coached the Green Bay Packers for 29 years. Tom Landry coached the Dallas Cowboys for 29 years. Don Shula coached the Miami Dolphins for 26 years. Chuck Knoll coached the Pittsburgh Steelers for 23 years. And Bill Belichick has coached the New England Patriots now for 22 years. And there are many others, many other white coaches with 10 plus years of head coaching of one team. Mike Tomlin holds the record. For the longest tenure with one team in the NFL as a black coach, and that's 15 years. It's a similar story with black GMs who have outperformed, in many cases, their white counterparts on average when you consider them again being excluded from most of the history of the league. They were not allowed to have these jobs. And there's been limited hiring over the last 30 years when the ceiling started to at least be open just slightly. And if, so, again, historically, they've not been allowed the roles, and those that have, have had, they've been very limited and had very short tenures. Black GMs, by the way, if you're wondering, well, are they successful? They've won four of the last 22 Super Bowls. That's 20%, which is better than the average GM success rate in terms of building Super Bowl winning teams. Jerry Reese built the Giants teams that beat Tom Brady and Bill Belichick twice in the Super Bowl, including ending their undefeated season. And Ozzie Newsom built the Ravens teams that won two Super Bowls, one where they had to ride one of the greatest defenses ever to win the game. In the second, 12 years later, when Newsom found a way to rebuild the team around the offense to win the Super Bowl again. 
remember, in the NFL, there has never been a black owner. Again, there's only one owner of color in the NFL, and that's Jaguars owner Shad Khan. So when you're wondering, well, with the success that black coaches have had and the success that black GMs have had, why are they not represented more? Why is there not significant hiring? Why are we continuing to be stuck in single digits of representation? And that's because the people making the hires, the owners, are not represented either. Again, zero black owners in the history of the league compared to in the NBA where Michael Jordan's an owner and there's several minority owners who are black. And believe it or not, NASCAR has four black owners. This is the reason that explains, in my view, the root cause behind the lack of success, the Rooney Rule, the shameful lack of progress in hiring black coaches, GMs, and vice presidents in the NFL, despite that success I described. It is so obvious to all. Owners aren't diverse, and they simply don't care. Here's the most recent example of why Brian Flores is taking a stand. The Super Bowl, again, the biggest event of the sports year in the United States. And from that game, usually and traditionally in the NFL, it's always been the assistance from those Super Bowl teams that become the hottest commodities for hiring as head coaches. In fact, Kevin O'Connell, the offensive coordinator for the Rams, was hired after the Super Bowl by the Minnesota Vikings to be their next coach. But the Rams' defensive coordinator, Raheem Morris, a former head coach in the league with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, has not been hired. Morris is black. O'Connell is white. This is even after it was clear all year, all year, that the Rams had a very hyped-up offense. But for them to win throughout the year and in the playoffs, and especially the Super Bowl, it was the Rams' defense that carried them all year long in ultimately winning the Super Bowl, not the offense. Yet Raheem Morris has not been hired. Last year's Super Bowl was historic in the fact that it was the first time, at least in my memory, that the winning team had both the defensive coordinator and offensive coordinator were black coaches. And that of the four coordinators between both teams, three of the coordinators were black as well as the first time that both teams had offensive coordinators who were black in the Super Bowl. Looks like and sounds like fantastic progress. However, Todd Bowles, the Buccaneers defensive coordinator, former head coach of the New York Jets, where he led the Jets to their only winning season in 10 years, winning 10 games in 2015, the most wins the terrible Jets franchise has had, again, since 2010. This is a team that since he was fired, Todd Bowles was fired, has averaged less than four wins per year. Bowles was the defensive coordinator in Super Bowl 55 for the winning Tampa Bay Buccaneers team in 2021, yet he still has not received another NFL head coaching job. Byron Leftwich, the Buccaneers offensive coordinator and former starting quarterback in the NFL, he devised the offense that attracted Tom Brady to the Bucs. 
and had them be among the league leaders in all offense all categories of offensive production. Yet he still does not have a head coaching NFL job. And if he's been interviewed, it's only been once or twice. And this is even after he was endorsed by Brady and Bruce Arians, the head coach of the uh, Buccaneers. And then there's Eric Bieniemy, the Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator, who coaches the offense and calls the majority of the plays for Patrick Mahomes, the highest paid player in the league and the player who many believe will ultimately be go down as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. He's coached them and coached Mahomes to have the top-rated offense over the last four years, bar none, to make the AFC Championship game a record four years straight, to reach the Super Bowl in back-to-back years and win Super Bowl 54, and he still does not have a head coaching job. He's been interviewed a bunch of times, but in his mind, probably to satisfy the Rooney Rule. He's been endorsed by Patrick Mahomes. He's been endorsed by Andy Reid, the head coach of the Chiefs. Yet he still doesn't have a job. And by the way, as an update, Brian Flores was recently hired by the Pittsburgh Steelers as a senior defensive assistant. He's still continuing his lawsuit against the NFL, against the Dolphins, against the Broncos, and the Giants. But it's very important to note that the team that hired Flores when others were backing away from him and it appeared that he was effectively going to be banned like Colin Kaepernick was the team that led that is led by the longest tenured black head coach with one team in the history of the league, Mike Tomlin, and the franchise whose owner, Dan Rooney, the Rooney Rule is named after. I would think that this is a statement by the Pittsburgh Steelers to the rest of the league that it's time for the owners to take full accountability and clean up this mess by breaking this glass ceiling and breaking ranks and taking real action. The racial bias and leadership in the NFL is so obvious and the farcical nature of the Rooney Rule is also so obvious that even NBA coaches see it and talk about it openly. NBA coach Chauncey Billups said of the NFL, the Rooney Rule. So I think it just gives you a check the box kind of a situation. And I don't think that's fair. Billups added, but for some reason, they thought that the rule was going to be the great equalizer. And it's not. So I'm not crazy about the NFL rule. And I'm not crazy about a couple other things in the NFL. But I'm blessed to be in the NBA. So the Rooney Rule is clearly not enough. There must be more pressure put on owners from fans, the press, advertisers, and from their own ranks like it appears the Pittsburgh Steelers are trying to do. But the biggest influence and pressure needs to come from the star players. And the biggest star players in the NFL are the quarterbacks. There is no player in the league that has more clout than the starting quarterback. And that voice is magnified when that quarterback is a star and even more when they are the starting quarterback in the Super Bowl. And when it comes to bringing attention to racism, to racial injustice, the biggest platform to be influencers of society 
and to put pressure on ownership are the star white quarterbacks, those who are willing to use their platform. Fortunately, this year's Super Bowl featured two such quarterbacks, two young white star players willing to stand up, speak out, and take action against racism and for anti-racism. Matthew Stafford was the number one pick in the 2010 NFL Draft by the Detroit Lions, and he spent the first 10 years of his career in Detroit. But he was traded to the Los Angeles Rams in a blockbuster trade before the start of 2021. Of course, he went on to lead the Rams to a Super Bowl 56 victory and is now a Super Bowl champion. However, while with the Lions during the 2020 season, when the country was experiencing social unrest after the George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor killings, the Lions were one of the, the, the NFL teams that canceled practice the same day that NBA players boycotted the playoffs following the shooting of 29-year-old Jacob Blake, a black man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, earlier in the week. To show their support for the NBA player's statement to call attention to the issue of racial injustice, again, the Lions, including Stafford, decided to cancel their practice. Stafford, one of the team captains at the time and the highest profile member of the team, also one of the highest paid players in the NFL, decided it was also his time to speak out. Stafford, who you probably know is white, he's from Texas, played college football at the University of Georgia, not places well known for white athletes who speak out on racial injustice. But he penned an article called We Can't Just Stick to Football, in which he writes, police brutality, white privilege, racism, it's all real. And so we can't just stick to football, not as a team, not as an organization. We shouldn't as a country either. Stafford was boldly stating that professional athletes, in particular star white athletes, must speak up and use their platform to drive change, especially racial justice change. Stafford also wrote that it's time we stop pretending or defending or just closing our eyes to what's right in front of us. We have to listen and we have to keep having these hard conversations. Stafford related that he was woken up to racism, how real it is, how real, real white privilege is. When he organized workouts over the summer for teammates uh, on the Lions, some of the, other, some of the wide receivers, players who catch passes from them, running backs, tight ends. He wanted them to all come down to Georgia and they were going to work out for a week or two to get ready for the upcoming season. Several of his play players and teammates came on the first day, but very few of the black players could make it. So almost all the white players showed up. They were in a park, kind of a public area. People could see them. No one stopped. No one said anything, according to Stafford. However, the next day, when all of his black teammates showed up, it was a totally different story, and Stafford got to see it firsthand. People started stopping immediately, asking, who are these people? Why are they here? What's going on? It didn't stop there. Police were actually called. 
Stafford was so shocked at this difference. He, he had never seen it that clear in front of him before. Certainly he thought racism existed, but he thought it was in isolated corners and that there wasn't something systemic that was going on in the United States, not certainly by everyday people, that it was built in to how we think. But when he asked his black teammates if they were shocked at what happened, they told him the reality, no, because we see this every day. We experience this every day. This is how we're treated all the time. No one was expecting Stafford to be that impacted, that he would write this letter publicly, that he would speak out as he did. But he believed that he had to. He understood that because of his privilege, he has a responsibility and accountability to stand up, speak out, and take action because he can when others can't. Matt Stafford is willing to risk his popularity and reputation to do the right thing and speak out and stand up and take action against racism and for anti-racism. Joe Burrow is the quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals, the losing team in Super Bowl 56. He was also a number one pick, the number one draft pick in the 2020 draft. He started his college career at Ohio State, but transferred to LSU, where he led the team to the national championship. And in one of the greatest seasons ever by a quarterback, he won the Heisman Trophy and set the all-time record for most touchdown passes in a season. He then was again drafted number one by the Bengals and started his rookie year with them. Had a strong year, was going well till midway through the season, he tore his ACL in a very devastating knee injury. But he was back the next year and led the team to the Super Bowl for the first time in 33 years. And in so doing, won the Comeback Player of the Year Award for the league. He also established himself as one of the most likable people in the league, as evidenced by him formally introducing himself to Rams defensive players between plays at the Super Bowl, as if they didn't know who he was. He was showing respect and humility. However, while at LSU, it was discovered that when he was in high school, he had sent racist tweets. Among some of the other things that he tweeted, one of them was, these monkeys just going to town. In reference to African-Americans, he was forced to erase the tweets and apologize. Now, he could have left it at that. Give his apology, erase the tweets. Now, stay quiet, put your head down, and do like so many of the other star white quarterbacks in the NFL do. And that is, just say the company line. Don't say anything controversial. Don't get involved. But that's not what he did. In fact, as a rookie... In the summer of 2020, before he even played his first game with the Bengals. This was during the time when there was social protest, unrest, people protesting against the murders of George Floyd and others. All of this was happening. And so Burrow joined his Bengals teammates to speak out against systemic racism. They had a press conference outside the Underground Railroad Museum and Burrow, as a rookie, decided he was going to be one of the ones to speak. He said, it is each of our responsibility to affect change in our communities, not only for us, but for those yet to come. 
He said, we cannot turn a blind eye to the racism that still is experienced in this country. He said, this is not an issue of politics, but a fight for equality and life. If this nation is ever to reach the goal that it has established to its citizens, we must, we must, we must be the catalyst for change. Burrow then took to Twitter to continue to use his massive platform to speak out against racism. In a tweet on May 29, 2020, Burrow wrote, The black community needs our help. They have been unheard for far too long. Open your ears, listen and speak. This isn't politics. This is human rights. In August 2020, Burrow shared a tweet urging his followers to support the black community in the wake of athlete protests around the country in response to the shooting of Jacob Blake earlier in the week. He tweeted, how can you hear the pain and respond with anything other than, I stand with you. Burroughs also used his platform in the past to advocate for social justice, again, including speaking specifically on the fatal shooting murder of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department. He's also advocated for college student athletes, in particular, to be compensated because he understands the vast majority of them that need the compensation are black athletes. In shedding light on the poverty and hunger in his hometown of Athens, Ohio, and the racism that he experienced and saw there. In fact, Joe Burr related to his Bengals teammates during a team meeting in the wake again of the George Floyd murder and all the protests around racial injustice. In that team meeting where the team was trying to decide how to support the fight for racial justice, he personally committed to take an outspoken stance on racial injustice. In that meeting, Burrell told the team a personal story about the racial injustice a black teammate experienced during their high school basketball days. Burrell explained how the fans at a rival school were yelling racial slurs at his friend, again, who was black, during a game which made him so upset that it shook him to his core. He was stunned and sad. After the game, he sat with his friend in the back of the team bus and Burrow made a vow to fight racial injustice for the rest of his life. Burrow's emotion when telling the story and his promise to fight against racial injustice and hate moved his teammates. No one was expecting Joe Burrow to speak out, but he believed that he had to. He now understood that because of his privilege, he had the responsibility and accountability to speak up, stand up, and take action because he could and others can't. Joe Burrow was willing to risk his popularity and reputation to do the right thing, to speak out, stand up, and take action against racism and for anti-racism. Brian Flores recently spoke on why he is willing to risk his career by filing this lawsuit against the NFL. He told ESPN that we need change. The hiring practices in the National Football League, hey, the numbers speak for themselves. 
I've been in this league for 18 years. And the National Football League, an example to the world, it really is. People follow the lead of the NFL. They just do. That's how powerful the league is. There's an opportunity here for real change. There really is. He said, we are at a fork in the road. Things are either going to stay the way they've been or we're going to move in a direction that not only will help and affect change among the black and minority coaches in the National Football League, but elsewhere in this country as well. Brian Flores is brave. No one can doubt that. But he can't do it alone, no matter how courageous he is. We need many others to speak out, but most specifically, young white quarterbacks in the NFL. The brightest of stars, like Stafford and Burrow, to also show their courage and not be like those of the past who refused to speak. The Tom Brady's, the Drew Breeses, the Peyton Mannings, the Aaron Rodgers, the Ben Roethlisberger's, and so many others who re re refused to speak up and chose to remain silent. Instead, Matt Stafford and Joe Burrow refused to remain silent. Instead, they decided to role model standing up, speaking out, and taking action by using their star, their Super Bowl platform for anti-racism and to inspire other young white men to use their privilege and their platforms, no matter how big or how small, to do the same thing in society as a whole. In our next segment, you will meet a young man who is doing just that in even more distinct ways than Stafford and Burrow. ARC member Colin McGillicott. He will join me next on the show and share his story. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. Welcome back to the Ark of Change. As promised, we're here with Colin McGillicott. Uh, a member of ARC and one of our uh, star individuals who's continuing to do great work in the city of Chicago uh, and across our ARC network. How are you doing today, Colin? Thank you so much for joining our show. Doing well. How are you? You're in uh, sunny Florida and I'm in snowy Wisconsin. So there's <laughs> one, one positive there. But But yeah, I'm doing good, man. Awesome. Awesome, man. Thanks for joining the show. Um, as you know, our, our first episode for season two was all about a new hope for 2022. Uh, we welcomed uh, four um, or th three high school um, students who are really are doing great work um, and give me a new hope for 2022. But I got to tell you, you are also someone who brings me great hope in 2022 because of the things that you are doing. So I wanted to make sure that everyone else who listens to the Ark of Change had a chance to also hear from you. So, Colin, tell us all about yourself. Yeah, no problem. So I'm uh, 31. I live in Chicago. I've been in, engaged for a little bit now to my fiance Lauren. We get married March 12th, so I look forward to that. It's a kind of weird time to get married uh, mm -hmm. with everything going on in the world and yeah. different cities are tackling the pandemic differently and Chicago still has um, pretty strict rules and guidelines around that. 
Um, but that's all good. Uh, I grew up about an hour south of Chicago in a very small community and to the point where we had four four towns combined. But I grew up being in the south side, a White Sox fan, diehard Bears fan, uh, Bulls fan. I, I have slight memories of the second three, Pete. I, I would be a liar if I said I remember the, the first three. Uh, but obviously, Jordan's uh, the top of everybody's mind here. So uh, getting into debates about um, LeBron versus Jordan is a very common thing for Southside <laughs> Chicagoans. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, for what I really, I, I live in Wicker Park now and I work in, in sales for a software company called Rico. It's like a middleware software company. Um, and I went to the University of Illinois, but growing up in Chicago, it's it's a city that has uh, a lot of diversity, but it also has a lot of challenges. And um, I kind of grew up blind to that. I went to a, a high school in the south side, well, south suburbs again of Chicago that was predominantly black. So I was around uh, African-Americans pretty much from early on until graduating high school. And it, it, never really phased my brothers and I. Uh, we obviously weren't weren't colorblind. We understood that there was uh, th- there was different skin tones and it's kind of different family situations and uh, but we didn't really see uh, racism too aggressively, especially systematic racism um, at least then growing up. when I look back, uh, and I could talk to this later, I, I I do see themes of it and I do see issues and challenges of some of, of my behavior that I got to grow and see a different life perspective and, and kind of learn from. But really, uh, two things kind of hit me as I was growing, growing up and leaving that situation. And really, it was when I went to the University of Illinois, uh, which prides itself on having a diverse student population, which it did, uh, but it's it's it definitely doesn't do a good job of melting cultures and mixing cultures. Kind of by accident of trying to make people feel inclusive, kind of kept people in their own circle in their own bubble. So, uh, just as an as an example of that, uh, I lived in a dorm that had a soul food night. And they tried to make it so that uh, all all the the different cultures would get together and come to Soul Food Night. But what ended up happening was most of the uh, African American students from across the campus would go, and nobody else would. Mm. And it, it caused more harm than than good by accident. So segregation started to grow as people formed groups. So I went to college with a, a, a large amount of African-American friends just due to nature of playing football and doing different things. And then I graduated college with just one or two friends of color, which hit me when I moved to Rhode Island immediately after school and I kind of reflected on my days. So that that was a little interesting. And I started my job in Rhode Island with a new hire class uh, for Schneider Electric. And we had a new hire class of 32 people. They hired a lot of people. They put us through this intense training program 
And out of the 32, we only had one uh, minority team member on the entire team. It was 31 uh, white folks, one person of color um, on the whole team. And that was kind of staggering to me. And there was probably four or five people of color in the whole side of our office. And uh, it, it, it just changed. <laughs> it kind of changed everything to realize that this is how a lot of the rest of the United States, white people see the world. Yeah. Um, this is how a lot of people have grown up with one or two people, persons of color in their daily lifestyle. And uh, I grew up in a totally opposite situation, but slowly but surely that that became the life I, I ended up living and morphing into too, which mm-hmm. uh, kind of was a hard thing to take on, <laughs> hard, <laughs> hard reality to hit. And again, you kind of live with what you live with blinders on and don't really accept that because yeah. you, 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 you find other reasons to focus and other things to, to take your mind off of that, I guess. Yeah, man, that's, um, I remember I went to college in, uh, in the late eighties from 86 to 90, I played college football at Purdue. And one of the things I always remember is how our team was diverse. It was, you know, mixed different groups of, of people, uh, mostly white and African-American. Um, and if you see us on the field, you know, we're all intermingled, but as soon as we went to training table, that's where you saw things change. If you walked in our training table, which is where we ate as a team on the left-hand side, were all the white players on the right-hand side, were all the black players. And there were very few of us that would switch sides. I would try to switch sides here and there, but, um, it, it's amazing how it, 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 this, this sort of, you know, I don't know if it's unintentional or, or a subconscious sort of segregation occurs because of just the societal norm. So it's interesting you saw something similar at the University of Illinois. I did want to go back and ask you a little bit more about Chicago because you mentioned Jordan. I think what happens is people, when they think about Chicago, they either think, you know, two or three things that come to their mind. One is either Al Capone and sort of the Chicago boroughs and all the politics from years back um, and, you know, that kind of thing. Or they they think about uh, the 85 Bears. That comes to their mind. Or they think about Jordan and the Bulls. The other thing they think about besides those things, all those are all kind of historical. But the thing that always seems to come up is these misconceptions about Chicago, that it's like like a battlefield and like it's the most dangerous place ever. Um, you lived there. You grew up there. What can you talk about in terms of these misconceptions and kind of what you have noticed around how some of these are based on historical redlining, racism and those kinds of things? that you see in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's funny in a sales role, you get to travel across the whole U S for, for work. And every single person that I talk to from select industries, predominantly of talking to the, in the industrial sector, every single person likes to bring up our mayor and they like to bring up gun violence and carjacking every time. And they're like, I don't know how you live there. I, every conversation starts with that. So uh, it's, you, you would wish you would talk about how the white Sox and bulls are good again, but instead <laughs> they want to talk about how crappy we are and they blame it on being a, a democratic city and a, a useless mayor. And it's, it's, it, it drives me kind of nuts and I have to exhale, ignore what they say and focus on why I'm there and get out of that room. Cause yes. that's not somebody I want to be uh, friends with or really associate with much when they drive down that road too hard. 
Exactly. But but that is the global perception of Chicago is that you go outside and somebody's going to be shooting a AR-15 on my block when it's quite the opposite. There's a lot of young families that live near me, very well tree lit uh, area. And I, I live in a, a part of the city that actually does uh, have a diverse population um, in the border of West Town and Wicker Park. Um, but that's not the case throughout a lot of Chicago. Chicago, while it's very diverse, uh, is very segregated. And it's been segregated by design um, for many, many years. So even about probably 40, 50 years ago is when even Polish, Irish, and Italian communities started to conjugate. So the segregation is so far that it separated all the European immigrants around the city as well. But now the segregation has truly caused two huge issues. One, there's a major wealth gap and a major educational gap in a lot of parts of the city. And when you do hear about violence and you do hear about a lot of the things that are occurring now, these have been happening in these pockets of the city that the city is kind of due to long history of segregation, long history of uh, closing politically, losing tax funds, losing police districts, losing public transportation, that these cities have become sort of uh, neighborhoods with pockets of poverty and failed states, um, that, that violence is very real there. I don't want to deteriorate that and ignore that that exists. But why people are seeing this as a challenge and why everyone thinks it's a war zone is because now we're seeing some of the very popular, like populated, expensive, really wealthy neighborhoods experiencing or seeing crime once a month uh, outside of recent carjackings, which have been on the rise, but in general, it'll be once a month here and there, something bad happened in a very prominent area. Then that goes nationwide because all the folks that are affluent that live there are outraged and can't believe it. But they ignore and they <laughs> seem to forget that that we shut down a lot of schools. Mm. Uh, there's been a disappearance of industrial jobs, steel plants, logistics companies all over the south and west side. We've shut down public transportation to a lot of schools in the south and west side. And there's there was a rule, a mandate that getting access to education a few years ago uh if you were within two miles of your school you no longer had a bus in some areas of the city and we we neglect all of these areas we neglect the fact that jobs are in some areas that are hard to get to without public transportation and that are in areas that cost uh, a very hefty amount of money to live in to have the ability to to work or access or even eat lunch. Mm -hmm. And so we, we, we kind of ignore how public policies have played a huge role of what I would say reinforcing uh, the systematic racism and, and actually circling these areas and uh, kind of 
what what uh, what people refer to as the ghetto where we're putting big walls and making it nearly impossible for folks to get out of there yes so um that's one area that's impacting this the second thing is outside firms and large real estate companies uh have found areas that are that are safer on the bubble (laughs) where folks are more commonly moving to and in a 10-year period they're completely gentrifying these neighborhoods so we're going through a second second wave of redlining so i would suggest to all the listeners listen to read the color of law it covers the historic redlining of chicago and it, it goes deep into it better than i ever could but but i'm we're seeing a new wave now where if you go to randolph street past Ashland toward the United Center. That used to be a neighborhood where people would tell you never to go to, don't walk there at night, blah, blah, blah. Now it's the home of many Michelin star restaurants and the most expensive condos in in the city. So when these families are pushed out of these areas, they get pushed into smaller living spaces, worse living conditions. And, and the second thing that comes out of a lot of this is they get pushed into areas that have heavy pollution and uh, food insecurities. So we have about 500,000 Chicagoans that have no access to a real grocery store. So it's, it's, it's kind of a bizarre cycle and it happens in front of our everyday lives. And when you go to a Bulls game, you do see people of all ethnicities sitting around and, and, uh, enjoying themselves and enjoying a game peacefully. And as, as if to the point you made earlier, that that there is no segregation at all in the city. But as soon as we get back in our cars or get back on the train or the bus to go home, uh, everyone's back to their own comfort and, and segregation becomes real again. Man, that's, um, that's extremely powerful. You're, you're just speaking the absolute truth. And again, for those who um, have not read it, um, as Colin said, highly, highly, highly recommend. In fact, I would say it's required reading. It should be required reading in our schools. The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Uh, It simply presents the facts around um, uh, redlining and how redlining um, was basically a collaboration between the federal governments, the state governments, the local governments, even local uh, civic uh, uh, organizations uh, to basically lock minorities and particular African-Americans into some of the worst areas in the city. Um, Ironically, to Colin's point, in many of the largest cities in the country where downtown real estate has now become uh, very um, uh, desirable, because originally it was, you know, move the white people or allow white people to move to the suburbs, lock the black people into into these sort of ghetto areas in the, in the inner cities, but now those areas are becoming um, desirable. There's this second round of redlining, uh, and it's not just happening in Chicago. Uh, it's happening all over. Again, many of the big cities in the country, uh, to the point that even there was a movie called The Last Black Man in San Francisco that basically um, highlights how a black family lost its historic home, its family home, um, due to this second wave um, in a lot of black Americans are just being eliminated from these cities. So thank you for highlighting that. Um, one of the positive things I would say about Chicago recently is they were one of the few teams 
to actually hire a black general manager for the Bears. So the Bears recently hired a, a, a black general manager, which is great. Uh, unfortunately, um, if you look at the National Football League NFL, and I talked about this earlier in the podcast, um, less than half of the teams in the league have ever even had a black GM or a black coach. Um, luckily, the Bears are one that have had a black coach. Levy Smith took them to the Super Bowl um, and now uh, hiring a black GM. But the the league's um, record is abysmal on, on hiring um, black coaches, GMs, or any in leadership positions in the National Football League. And uh, Brian Flory is one of the best young coaches um, in the league, uh, was fired by the, by the Miami Dolphins. And he's, filing a, he's filed a lawsuit alleging racism and bias in hiring practices. Um, he's highlighted suing the NFL as well as three teams, uh, the Miami Dolphins, the New York Giants, and the Denver Broncos, for uh, basically perpetuating the effectual exclusion of African-Americans and blacks from head coaching and executive leadership roles, even though they make up 70% of the players in the league. Uh, They have less than 10% of the coaches and I think about 14% of the GMs, something like that, uh, while 70% of the players are are African-American. What do you think about this situation and why is it important? Again, it's in sport. It, it's the NFL. People say that's just a game. But why is this an important issue um, that impacts a lot of the things you've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, it's the most watched uh, sport on television. So any voice, any view, all of this matters. And it is going to influence generations to come and generations that's, that still exist that are paying attention to a lot of these things. And people like to sweep stuff under the rug really fast in these organizations as well. So we have seen the NFL evolving in some ways. And and again, I could say a lot of positive things about how Chicago has evolved as well. I could go on longer than that about the great things I love, um, but the, and the great things about the NFL, but there are things like this. And if you talk to a lot of Chicago Bears fans, they're extremely ecstatic and extremely happy about Justin Fields and the polls higher. And nobody expected us to make the move to get Justin Fields. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, there's no way the McCaskey family would ever move up to draft a black quarterback. Yeah, because they they passed on Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. (laughs) Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. It it made me remember that, but go ahead. No, exactly. It, it, It shocked the world. We were all excited. We were all ecstatic. And funny enough, I was at the, uh, the Bears game when, unfortunately, Andy Dalton got hurt. No one wants somebody to get hurt. But Justin Fields came in. They played the Super Bowl contending Bengals, and the Bears won the game. And when that young man came in, the whole stadium to the standing ovation for, <laughs> for many, many minutes. So that was like uh, such a crazy thing that I never thought I would see in, in, in my lifetime. And we're putting our whole future behind him. So with that in mind, a lot of folks that you talked to across the city wanted the Bears to interview Flores and Leftwich. Those are like, if you talk to the fan favorites, all the sport commentators, <clears throat> those are the guys uh, that, that would come up all the time about who should be coaching the Bears. Then you had conspiracy theorists like myself that wanted Mike Tomlin. <laughs> we, we thought we were going to uh, somehow get Mike Tomlin here. Yeah. And that never happened. But, but, 
but we're but in general with with polls were very exciting we're seeing progress in a bears organization that hasn't really had much in many many years and it, it's been long overdue and and it, it doesn't matter if you like the cubs if you like the Sox, if you're a big hockey fan if you're a big bulls fan the entire city of chicago comes close to the bears when they have zero wins and when they have 16 wins yeah. 17 wins now so uh that's it's it, it's a big deal for us what's what's sad though is seeing that the bears want to relocate to a different location yep. and and not really working really well with the city to try to make improvements or stay in chicago because once they do move to this northwest suburbs mm-hmm. it's going to be very difficult for a lot of lifelong fans ticket holders tailgaters families uh especially families from the south suburb and south side <clears throat> to have any access to see uh the bears play live it's they're going to get costed out of their fandom which which we've seen also happen ironically to a lot of fans and uh for the cubs and now we're seeing it kind of recircle for the White Sox. Man, um, I think first, thank you for for your insight. I, I, I forgot again about uh, about this issue of will the Bears ever draft a black quarterback? Because if you pass on Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson, you know, I, hey, I don't want bad things for Mr. Trubisky, but the guy played one year at North Carolina. I mean, there's no way uh, to to give up what they did. But that's a that's another point. They they, they made it up for it with with Justin Fields. But uh, it's good to hear that the fans um, have been clamoring for this. I mean, I thought Brian Flores would have been a perfect fit uh, with the Bears. Uh, but it's good to hear that that's where the fan base was because that helps drive the change that we need uh, in sports. And as you know, when we see things happen in sports, when we look up and we're watching on television, it tends to impact society. You know, obviously Jackie Robinson is a perfect example of that and in, in how he integrated baseball and how that impacted society. Uh, but I also think we need – star players in the NFL, if we really, if, the, if this ha- is going to change and it's going to have an impact outside of the league, we need the star players, in particular, the, the players who make the most money, get the, or get the most screen time, um, that are the most important players in the field, and that's the quarterbacks, and it's the white quarterbacks that we need to speak up, and historically, they haven't. Um, you've never really heard Tom Brady say anything about this, um, about uh, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, Roethlisberger, even back Peyton Manning, these guys never really were outspoken about the, the racial inequities in the NFL and in society. However, this year's Super Bowl, we had two young quarterbacks that have done that. Um, you know, both Matt Stafford, the quarterback for the winning uh, Los Angeles Rams, and Joe Burrow, the quarterback for the Bengals, they both have stood up and made very public statements against racism and for anti-racism, calling out, um, you know, basically white Americans to wake up, see the truth that systemic racism exists, and the only way it's going to change is if they do something. So this, to me, was one of the bright spots uh, of this year's Super Bowl for those two guys to be there for what they're doing. Um, But uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, why do you think it's important for, uh, and I'll even not even just talk about quarterbacks or young quarterbacks, but young white men, why is it important, you think, for young white men to take a stance against racism and speak up for anti-racism 
Um, and I mean, you're one of them. Why is it so important for you to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's just, uh, seeing and accepting that we're privileged, um, and that we have, even if you grow up working class or in a poorer class, we have more, we have a tremendous opportunity to break out of our cycle. So it's easier for uh, a white male to break out of that cycle, easier than white females, easier than any minority in the US. So once you kind of kind of accept that and actually acknowledge that, um, it's easier to have a civil conversation to show people real statistics, not just heavy inflated opinions mm-hmm. against that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I go back to something pretty uh that if you watch the show watchmen on hbo yeah they start their their show with the tulsa city bombings and i've asked a lot of my friends about that episode in that show like hey did you ever learn about that in school none of us knew about that scenario until we watched that television show which is supposed to be a fictional show and that's the only non-fiction thing that they showed (laughs) in the entire program and um it was pretty crazy to me to accept that even our uh, kind of going on a side pivot here, but that our history books kind of covered some of these uh, situations and even like the race riots of Chicago. Right. Uh, I don't remember learning about it all. And that happened right. just 45 minutes north of where I live and where I've lived now for, for eight or eight years now. And no one ever talks about that or kind of just brushes that under the rug. So when we see somebody in a very public space have a voice or speak out, it it, face, it, it, it causes you to listen more and, and face the facts. But uh, to a point you made, all voices can matter. And something that I, I just want to point out uh, along those lines is two things. I, I volunteer for a group called Headcounts. We get to register voters and set up people for local election news uh, at concerts, at marches, at any large gatherings. And a lot of people want to debate us that their vote doesn't matter or voice doesn't matter. But I just want to bring up an example of a very cool story. Last year, there was these high school students uh, that found out about a recycling plant in an affluent part of Chicago had high pollution levels, so it was shut down. So what does a, the corporation and plant decide to do? They move to a, a poorer neighborhood, mostly Latino neighborhood in the south suburbs. And they say that they're going to bring jobs, but they're actually bringing extremely high levels of pollution and causing a lot of lung challenges, long-term, short-term, short-term and, and more problems than, uh, than not in the area. And this was going on. But a group of high school students started with one. One guy laid down in front of the building in protest, and he did a hunger strike. And more and more people started joining this hunger strike. And this started with a 17-year-old uh, out of high school. And just recently, um, on February 18th, 2022, the Chicago Department of Public Health denied the recycling permit application to operate the plant on the southeast side. So we saw these young high schoolers start a hunger strike, 
get the voice in the head of the Chicago Public uh, Department of Public Health and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and they took down a big company. So these are high schoolers, and their voice was able to do that. And you and to go to an even crazier extreme, I don't know if you've read the book Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, but I would recommend that book as well to mm. any listeners. But okay. uh, he brings... Go ahead. No, I said, okay, I, didn't, I hadn't heard about that. I love Malcolm Gladwell, so I'm, I'm writing that one down. I've got to, So it's Talking to Strangers. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. Excellent. And he has a lot of stories focused on uh, what racial tensions and situations in, in Chicago. Um, one, and I don't want to spoil the book, but one story that he talks about is this gentleman, Daryl Davis, who's a black musician who played blues and jazz and uh, was playing nightclubs and um, he played with Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, B.B. King, and he was doing an amazing job at some club when he was playing music. And a Klansman didn't realize the artist was uh, a black man. And he asked him, like, what the heck? You're stealing these guys' style? And he's like, no, actually, I taught them their style. <laughs> and he actually made, he, he sat down with the gentleman the next day and kind of walked through with them. Hey, why are you so scared of me? I'm just a normal human. I like similar things. It goes deeper than that. Wow. But he actually converted this gentleman to leave the clan. Wow. And then he made it kind of a mission to, to go and do more of that. So this guy, man, you want to talk about brave? He was going to clans meetings. He was sitting with grandmasters, debating them. And to the point where one guy was leading one of the largest fractions made Daryl Davis the godfather of his baby. Oh my gosh, wow. So so this guy went and he, he was on the front lines of voice and he was doing some brave stuff to actually uh, make change on the forefront, which man, if that's not inspiring, I don't know what is, but what I'll tell you is you, you, you inspired me. Uh, I was uh seeing a lot of these things i was having memories because naturally uh all these large tension situations were happening over the last six years uh illinois outside of illinois across the whole u.s we're the only country that has these large public uh situations of a of somebody being pulled over by the police to uh somebody being shot or many mass shootings and if you think of uh dylan i'm forgetting his last name i don't even want to remember it you think of that situation where that guy went into a that kid went to a black church he shot up the entire church yeah and then he walked out and lived he didn't get gunned down by the police nope and that, that that's astonishing uh when you when you really think about it just committed mass murder and instead of shooting a, a suspect that's armed and dangerous, they arrested him alive. And if he was of any other uh, color group, I would make a wager that that gentleman wouldn't be alive. Anymore. And uh, kind of having those those hard conversations is a little uncomfortable um, with some people, but but joining arc after seeing kind of you 
uh, on LinkedIn coming out as an executive and a leader in a very public role kind of inspired me to actually take what I believe and challenge injustice um, to my peers and family members to start now going a little extra with some coworkers and random strangers and social circles and uh, through joining this group and meeting other members, I found ways to do this in a civil, more civil manner where I'm not making a lot of people uh, leave a room and, and actually just challenge thoughts and gather opinions and use evidence and use history to convey people to change their mind. And when they don't, I just walk away. Um, but uh, knowing I have that ability and hopefully influence others to be brave enough to do the same thing makes your one voice become a thousand voices and i'll continue to try to make my voice stronger um and i think that hearing this hopefully some others brave out and do the same but man i gotta thank you it's uh, you and the daryl davises and some others have uh inspired me to uh be a lot braver and some not just this type of thing but even in life in general, I, I, I took a big leap at work recently. I switched roles. I joined off the big, uh, big company to go join a sort of a startup. Um, and before joining this and having different perspectives and going out of my comfort zone, because very much you live life in a comfort zone, I never would have done that. Never. So I have to thank you and the group a lot. Wow, Colin. I, I don't know how to follow that. That was... Um... You know, you you covered so many different aspects. There were there were probably ten questions I was going to ask you that you've already answered. Um, I, I'm sure that our audience is just um, really taking in um, this gift that you're providing of, of sharing your experiences. And I, I know you've shared so much. And by the way, thank you for for the kind words because that's certainly part of my mission: inspire people. But you are doing the same thing. Um, you're inspiring people, and so I want to give you. You know, one last opportunity. Is there is there one message that you want to leave the audience with uh, before you sign off? Uh, yeah, just be brave. Educate yourself. Um, don't take what somebody's shouting at you as the on the news screen as the truth about a situation. I think it's good to have an educated opinion. And when you hear something that makes you uncomfortable and that you don't respect, and especially if it's with a loved one or a close one, because those are the ones that usually you can work things out with, take a swing and challenge that. And every time you do that, you'll get braver and better at counseling through those types of situations. And if we don't do that, we're going to hold ourselves in the same status quo we are today. But the goal is that each generation gets better over time. And day by day, minute by minute, we can improve and make uh, life more equal for everybody. Thank you so much, Colin. Uh, and for, for those in our audience, I just want to let you know, not only do I want to thank Colin for all the great work he's doing, but I, I just want to give him some, some real praise because I can personally attest to the fact that Colin is a true leader. And as he said, he didn't know me. Um, we had never met, uh, but he reached out because he felt a need to do something. Um, and he's not a star quarterback. He didn't play in the Super Bowl. He's not a, a social media star. Uh, he is a guy 
who is trying to use whatever platform he has to drive change, to drive and spread anti-racism. And we need more people like Colin. We need more people like Valerie and Rosa and Sarah that were on our call. Uh, we need more people who, as Colin said, have the courage to stand up, speak out, and take action. Thank you, Colin. I'm so proud uh, that you're part of ARC and proud to have you as a friend. Enjoy the rest of your day and afternoon. And if we don't talk to you uh, until your, your, your big wedding that's coming up, uh, congratulations uh, ahead of time on that. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the kind words. And uh, if anybody wants to, feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to have a conversation. So thanks again. Enjoy your weekend and hopefully we catch up sooner than later. All right. Colin McGillicutt, everyone. ARC member, driving positive change, spreading anti-racism. Have a good one, Colin. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Bye. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett, and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the ARC of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.